If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying. Is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted. Is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are now listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Darnell Samuels and Joel Nikoloff. How's everybody doing today? I hope well, because we're about to give you a doozy of a show. Sounds like fun. All right, so what we're doing is looking at a post from Kathleen Wynne. But before that, we want to take up a question that we got from a listener about nafta hey darnell hey joel um i've got a question for joel specifically you brought up a lot of the positives about free trade about how it makes uh, ultimately our goods uh, and services cheaper if the companies with the comparative advantage and the countries with the comparative advantages are able to produce them but that's not always necessarily true you see how sometimes the collapse of a sector due to free trade leads to mass unemployment and mass unemployment can have a knock-on effect especially if entire sectors collapse like you see in the united states and you see in especially in the latin american countries and countries that are forced to have free trade agreements with united states and china you kind of brush all these minor problems as like, you know, uh, the market will correct itself. These are just temporary losses and eventually people will be employed. But sometimes, you know, the, the shock to the market has catastrophic effects on a nation and the ability for a nation to provide the services. Uh, unemployment means there's a bigger burden on the state, which provides less benefits and so on. So I really think that you're looking at the real life side of the effects of free trade. Uh, we've seen over past, you know, 50 years how free trade agreements far often better corporations than they do individuals in certain nations um, and we see that the benefits of free trade are really really skewed towards the bigger nations which have um, more resources and have stronger more diversified economies so from that perspective you can kind of understand why a government would try to protect its industry uh, for the sake of its people i just wanted to know if you guys could respond to that all right so clearly i'm getting called out regularly yeah no and that's okay that's good that's what we want and we want to thank thank uh wait he didn't leave his name are we gonna give him a name uh yeah okay okay you know what yeah uh maktar Enjai. all right all right so, so if- from now on from now on if you send in a voice clip and you don't give us a name darnell samuels will send you and i will give you a name all right, oh. Joel. You can continue. So what's his name again? Maktar Enjai. He used to play for the Raptors. Oh, not for very long. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, I want to first point out that I wouldn't. I, I want. I don't consider his statements to be steel manning our position. Okay. What do you mean by steel manning? So he's used two terms that I would actually say are not accurate. So he said comparative, uh, yeah, comparative advantage and free trade. And I believe he's used them incorrectly. So he said, compare like the countries with comparative advantage will no. 
that's not correct. In, in free trade, both sides have a comparative advantage. So if we go back to the example from the original uh, episode, I said that Darnell was producing 40 chairs per day and 10 tables per day, and I was doing five and five. So comparative advantage is about something called opportunity cost. So to produce one table, how much does it cost in chairs and vice versa? So for me, it's one and one both ways. One table costs one chair and one chair costs one table. But for Dardanelle, one table costs four chairs and one chair costs a quarter of a table. So when you look at those two individually for tables, it costs Darnell more. It costs them four chairs, it costs me one. So I have a comparative advantage in tables. So I'm going to produce tables. When you look at chairs, one table costs me, sorry, one chair costs me one table. And one for Darnell, one chair costs him a quarter of a table. So he has a comparative advantage in chairs. So, okay. so what, what, so the what point, do you want the audience to take from that? I, I mean, first off, I would say if you go, if you want to really understand these terms, you know, probably listening to somebody try to hash out comparative advantage. Well, we're going to definitely tough. put something in the show notes. Yeah, I, I was going to say check the the notes from that original episode because I put uh, some pretty thorough. I did two. One from Wikipedia, I believe, which was super simple, and then a more thorough uh, breakdown of those terms. Um, I'd have I don't have them right in front of me, right. but I did put some links for for all those, both comparative as well as the original theory, which was absolute advantage. So, in the first thing is, you're not using that term properly. Um, so, if let's level that sort of uh, framework but moving on to the other part is free trade uh, from the very beginning i always said these aren't for true free trade agreements they're trade agreements and so you're pointing out issues caused by trade agreements and i think you use a couple really key words like forced okay so you're saying the government forced this change Okay, that's not free trade. Free trade is do whatever you want. We're not going to be involved from a government's perspective. And so in this our scenario of comparative advantage, when you start specializing in chairs and I start specializing in tables or vice versa, whatever it was, the industry for the other in our country, yes, has long-term unemployment. But it's because you're now going to ramp up production in the other industry so that you can trade with the other country to, to now import what you're not specializing in and export what you specialize in. And so in the short term, there's pain because the former, ce in what way? The former CEO, the former laborer in the industry that's no longer in your country is out of work. Okay, so so pain meaning out of work. Yeah. And unemployment. And unemployment, but the other industry is growing because now you're producing for two countries. So now you have to figure out how can I transfer my table 
production skills or working in this factory and translate that to a, the new factories or the growing factories and join that. The, clearly, they're going to need more laborers. It's not like, or, or managers and CEOs or, or facility managers, whatever it is, right? Like, as you specialize, the other industry grows. So the problem is going back to specialization and, yeah, one industry's out of work. And if you don't have the ability to adjust to the other industry, again, that's not a free market. Usually that's government intervention preventing the reallocation of resources or the shifting of people from, let's say, one city to the next or whatever it is. So I, I think I've addressed the listener's point. Okay. Um, well, for Maktar, if this is not a satisfying response, uh, you could hit Joel up on Twitter at tjoeln39. And or, or is Facebook okay? Yeah. Just find me, Joel Nikoloff. And I see O-L-O-F-F. Okay. And you can find me on Twitter at dogooda underscore Darnell. <laughs> dogooda, D-O-G-U-D-D-A. You can find me on Twitter with that handle as well as Instagram and then Darnell Samuels on Facebook. But yeah. So let's get down to business. All, All right. right. So there was a post on Twitter from Kathleen Wynn and... Jordan B. Peterson jumped in on it. So we're going to start with her, her poster or her image that popped up. And it said, everyone deserves an affordable place to call home. And then Jordan B. Peterson retweets and, and comments and says, everyone deserves. This is how she sees the world. But houses have to be built and maintained and heated. Where's the deserves in that? So, I th for me, deserves was a key word, but there's a second word that I thought in her post. Jor Jordan Peterson obviously called out deserves. Yeah, it, J Jordan Peterson is a University of Toronto uh, psychology professor who's built a name for himself a for ruffling some feathers at the school in regards to free speech. So, and so he's a, definitely a guy you want to check out. Yeah, agreed. I I listen to a lot of interviews from a lot of different people with him and you he's got some perspectives on a lot of uh, different things so deserves was a word he he called out um but i thought that another word in her post was interesting was affordable so i think um we should probably hash those two things out first okay so let's look at the, the deserves first so what do we deserve as a people I think the way she used the word is different than what I think of when I hear the word. So okay. I think of like, I went to school, I completed everything I needed to do. I deserve my diploma, right? Like it's a direct cause and effect relationship between the things that I've done. So I went to work for eight hours. I deserve to get paid for eight hours. Um, it's a matter of, I mean, if you use the dictionary definition, it's about to be worthy of or qualified for or have a claim to reward, punishment, recompense. Um, sorry, recompense. Um, so it doesn't sound like she's using the word in that way, though. 
No, no, it doesn't. Well, what I take away from the word deserves, well, not what I took away, but really asking what are our human rights? That's what I hear when I hear deserves. And then I looked at Murray Rothbard. Uh, was, oh, so Mary, Murray Rothbard is an economist of the Austrian school. And he was saying that people fail to see that the property rights are in fact the most basic of all human rights. The human right of every man to his own life implies the right to find the trans or trans find and transform resources. So to produce that which sustains and advances life, the product is a man's property. So the first property right is oneself, and the second is what he makes just as long as he doesn't infringe on somebody else's property. Right? Which sounds a lot different. I mean, it sounds like she's trying to use deserves, like we have a a claim to this because we exist. Right, right. No, yeah, yeah. So that's what she's saying. And what Rothbard is saying is like, as you exist as a human being, the right you have to property is yourself. And then that would you do with your hands. And we even see some connections in regards to scriptures in the Ten Commandments, uh, the first four being for God and the last six being for man, right? The vertical and the horizontal. So we see don't kill, don't steal, don't covet and don't commit adultery, meaning uh, respect the person's private property. And obviously, you're not referring to relationships as uh, one dimensional. Well, it's reciprocal. Okay. okay, well, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. I'm Tyra's property. So, ladies, hands off. <laughs> okay? Agreed. All right. And I would say the same thing. I'm right. Jenna's property. Okay. Your so, boo thing. Um, on, on that note, though, you know, I think we use the term rights um, way too flippantly. Like, there's a legal connotation to the word rights um, that applies to what we were talking about with regards to property, personhood. Like, if someone infringes on my liberty, like, kidnap me and keep them in their... I, keep me in their basement like i have a right to for that not to happen right because the person's infringing on your private property as a person yes but to say i have a right to affordable affordable housing like uh, affordable housing doesn't come from nowhere right like Someone's got to put in the labor and the effort to maintain these things. And this is Jordan Peterson's point that we're just hashing out. It's not as simple as, oh, we think people should have these things. Therefore, it's a right. Like people are trying to say that high speed internet is a right. Now, what are we not saying? We're not saying we as a community don't have a responsibility to other people who can't afford. What we are saying is that when you call it a right, you start giving government authority to infringe on essentially the producer of housing to supply it in a, 
whatever, like in a non-voluntary scenario, right? They don't get to choose. They just have to do because the government dictated it. Right. Right. And I, and I would be, just to be clear, it isn't a right to have an affordable home. That responsibility, like if somebody's homeless, just to be clear, if somebody's homeless and they can't afford an affordable home, the responsibility is on your neighbor or the or your brother to be able to show charity, to help you find accommodations or them live with you, as opposed to leveraging the government to do our responsibility of showing charity. Because even when the government now is involved, takes away the incentive of the neighbor to show charity to those who are homeless. But uh, we got to move on. So the next point, what? the term affordable what's affordable well i think difficulty is affordability is relative to two things revenue and expenses okay so the revenue side of things we'll we'll, we'll touch on at a different conversation because that's wages and income but expenses you know if expenses are too high the question becomes why is it unaffordable, right? So if we're talking about an individual who doesn't have enough money because they spend too much gambling, it's unaffordable for them because their revenue can't cover all of their expenses. But are we saying we should just give them free housing so they can gamble more? No. Again, I know this is a small minority of people who self-inflict the unaffordability, but it's part of the equation. So let's, we've made that point. I don't think we need yeah, to hash right, it Right, right, yeah. But, so we'll leave affordable. And all I wanted to say was just in regards to affordable, it's, it, to me, it seems relative. For us who live in the West, who live off of credit, affordable is whatever I could swipe for or borrow. So to me, it's, it's somewhat of a relative term in regards to what's affordable for you might not be affordable for me. And even that affordable isn't really based on what I have in my account, but what I can use on credit. So I think the affordability question or, or point starts to lead to a really important question, which her statement, in my opinion, doesn't address, which is why is housing so expensive? What is making it unaffordable? Um, the my simple answer. Oh boy, you you won't be surprised. Well, I'm hold on. No, who, well, who I'm not surprised point? because your simple answers are never simple. But oh, okay, uh, but you know what? I got I got my notepad, my pencil sharpened. I, I hope the listeners are ready to go. Let's go, Joel. Okay, so my simple answer is usually pointing the finger at government. Um, well, what's the most controversial expense? That we've been dealing with lately in Ontario, especially energy. The cost of energy has been going through the roof. And, and I would suggest that that's a fundamental input for every aspect of living. So, our standard of living is becoming more expensive, not just from a, you know, what's the price of a house, but for like, building a house for going to the grocery store right put for them to put the lights on for people to manufacture you know the most fundamental aspects whether it's my clothes or shipping the clothes to the store the store then housing all of the, 
energy is such a huge burden right now because our cost is has literally doubled. Well, not quite, but almost doubled in the last 10 years. And just think back to what was that price tag on the gas plant scandal? Oh, that's a burden that we're bearing in our energy costs. We've got essentially regional monopolies with who provides energy to my home and basic economics. You want to drive the price down, increase competition. We don't have competition at all in energy. And we've got the issues with the um, green contracts where they sign them thinking, oh, 30 years from now, they're going to be affordable. Well, in 2016, they had to renew these contracts and they know that we're spending, we're, we're literally exporting electricity at a loss because we have excess from the green energy that is unreliable. And when we need a certain level of capacity to get through an ice storm, the green energy can't help us. So we have these other burdens that give us the capacity to survive day to day. And then this high for high cost of energy based on the contracts they've signed that is just driving every aspect of our lives up in cost. It's a fundamental input. Okay. So then what is it that you want the listener to take away from that? I don't want them to think I'm criticizing investing in innovation or that I think there may be a need to move away from current forms of energy. What I'm saying is that government picking winners before something is an, is economically viable is sorry, What do you mean by, sorry, what do you mean by winners? Um so right now solar and wind is the energy of the future. But without government subsidy, just look at Tesla, $14,000 discount on every car. By discount I mean me as a consumer, I get to claim a rebate from the government. So essentially, it's an indirect $14,000 from the consumer back to Tesla. And they're about to launch a $50,000 car that really costs $35,000. So you're making a comparison with every other $35,000 car. But Tesla just gets to bank fourteen. dollars So they're picking this form of new energy as the winner by saying, oh, we're going to sponsor it. And my point is really that maybe there's a, like, we're, we're actually stifling innovation, whether it's revising the energy capacity for those green energy. Like, the biggest problem with green energy is storage. It costs, it, it, we can't hold the, the energy, we can't maintain the capacity for the ebbs and flow of the input because wind and sun are unreliable. And consequently, we might have some unknown form of energy that will actually be the future. And we're not, no one's striving for that new energy or making those two energies more efficient such that they would just be profitable without government intervention. Because with the government intervention, they can just move at, forward as it is today and make money. So that's the economic viable side of it. And I, my point is it stifles innovation because there might be a better use of those resources. Maybe it's even making fossil fuels less carbon producing and maybe uh, more efficient 
right? That's another form of technology that would actually resolve some of these problems, but it's not politically correct to like fossil fuels, even if we somehow made it super efficient from all of the criticisms that are currently available. Okay. Okay. So is the housing boom a good thing in your opinion? So I think you're too generic in your question in that is the current housing boom the the one we're experiencing right now well the, the one okay well so Kathleen Wynn says Ontario is growing faster than all G7 countries which is a fan, which is fantastic news but that growth means that uh, buying or renting a home has gone up so high housing prices especially in the greater Toronto area has gone up and families are being phased out of the market. So what she's saying is uh, we need to take action to make renting or buying a home in Ontario more affordable and that it, that's exactly what they're trying to do. So I would, I'm saying that the current housing boom is a bad thing because of the cause. I don't see the cause what she's claiming, which is Ontario's population is growing. Really good example um, is look at Milton. So the cause of housing prices change in Milton, which for anyone not in the GTA, Milton's just a a town outside of the GTA. You can commute into GTA to, to work or to Toronto to work. But um, in 1996, the population was 32,000. In 2016, it was 110. So over that time span, housing prices in Milton went up because people considered it more valuable to live in this town that now can functionally essentially autonomous or city can function autonomously so when the boom is caused by a change in value that is due to you know the economy doing better or the you know relative value like hey do you want to live in the middle of nowhere where you know two-thirds of the things you'd be able to get in mississauga or oakville are unavailable no you're going to consider that less valuable but now Milton essentially has everything that every other. It's town built has, up now, right? So the value has changed. The reason I say the value hasn't changed is because I look at a really I, I ran a, num, a numerical example to say what caused the price increase, and um, the assumption. Or I'm going to lay out a couple assumptions for a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage. And look at what's changed in the last 10 to 20 years and say, what has this caused? So $500,000 mortgage, 30-year amortization, monthly payments. Um, I basically just did this at Scotiabank's website, put in the parameters. Okay. Um, the other assumption I'm going to make is that 40% of a person's income will use, be used for a mortgage in order to estimate what would be the minimum household income in order to qualify for this mortgage. So. At 8% interest, your mortgage payment for $500,000 would be $3,600. That would require $110,000 income. 5% interest would result in a $2,700 mortgage, $81,000 minimum income, and 3% interest would be $2,100 mortgage, $63,000 household income. And two individuals working $14 an hour could, could afford that. So what does this mean? What have I shown? Well, 
if we're looking at a given house at 500,000, when the interest rates dropped from 8%, which wasn't that, isn't that absurd, like 10, 15 years ago. And there's been mortgage rates at like 12 to and above over time. The number of people, when you drop the interest rate, who qualify for a $500,000 mortgage drastically increases, which means the number of buyers for any house at that price point increases. Well, in economics, let's use the generic terms. Increase in buyers means an increase in demand. Increase in demand when you hold everything else constant is cause for increase in prices. That excess demand competes the prices up. Now, if I was to say that there was economic growth and more people had $110,000 income and the housing prices went up, that's a good thing because people now are competing the prices up because more people can afford it. But we've artificially lowered the cost of borrowing to make it more affordable. And we could look at history to find examples of this. It's economic progress through innovation, like the Industrial Revolution and the Agricultural Revolutions, where standards of living were improved from these revolutions, right? It costs less labor, or there were less farmers needed to farm. There was less labor needed to manufacture goods. So now our labor became more productive. And so when labor becomes more productive, that drives income up, the standards of living up, it drives the output of goods up. And when that happens and that causes demand to grow, that's a good thing. Now, do you think the housing boom is a good thing? Yes, yes, of course. I, I think it's a good thing in that those people who, are, who get the houses that they want and have the homes that they want is a good thing. And it's not my fault that if you took so long to get into the market and now you can't get in because it's too expensive and now you got to relocate and leave the GTA and go find somewhere that is more in your budget. And that's fine. That, that's you running your lane. I think that's a good thing that everybody has a budget to work within in regard what's affordable. But I think the principle I want the listener to walk away with, uh, and, and Sheldon Richmond, the former editor of The Freeman and the contributor to the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics, says Today, semi socialists favor government regulation of property in the name of social justice. But the principle remains. When the government regulates the use of private property, it steals the power of self-determination from the people, meaning that private property, your human right, what you deserve is your own property, your physical body, and what you attain with your own hands, right? Without, without government interference in regards to, well, what do you deserve? Well, you deserve what your hands can achieve. As opposed to the government saying, okay, look, I'm going to make it so it's achievable for you, right? So don't be mad at me because I had my money in order and I was able to get in the market when it was the right time. And I mean, I would say just a small rebuttal regarding, you know, whether it's a good thing. I think I'm not, most of your reasons, I'm not, I wouldn't argue with. My point is I don't think it's sustainable. 
right? So because the cause is what it is, I deem the boom unsustainable and therefore I deem it a bad thing. Um, because all those people you're talking about that got a house and got in early, when if the bubble bursts, like I expect it to, it might not be a good thing anymore. And so that's where maybe I'm looking at a longer time frame. Um, right. So I think that's my two cents. I know that's my two cents. And uh, let's hear your two cents. I know you all think I'm wrong. <laughs> but you heard me? Does that make sense? <laughs>